All right, we're going to be spending the next few weeks in an amazing portion of Scripture. As you see by the cover on the bulletin, the passage of Scripture that we're going to be studying is regularly called the Sermon on the Plain. We're going to be uh, diving into some of the greatest teachings of the greatest teacher that ever lived. We're going to be spooning out the truth from the vast ocean of his knowledge. Each word, each phrase, each sentence, each verse, so full of significance and truth. May we come to this teaching of, of our Jesus with a true openness and humility, with a true desire to hear his message and to apply it to our lives. Jesus wasn't just a great teacher. He was a radical teacher. He pushes the boundaries. He challenges the status quo. He takes what we think is conventional wisdom and he turns it around on his head, teaching true biblical truth and reality. I've entitled these next few sermons, Upside Down Truth. Not that his truth is upside down, but that our way of thinking is so skewed that God's truth hits us as so radical it turns our earthly wisdom upside down. We're going to come face to face, heart to heart, with the very words, the teachings of Jesus on the Sermon on the Plain. Now, many of you here are wondering, well, I've heard about the Sermon on the Mount. I know about that. That's recorded in three chapters in Matthew, Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. We're going to be looking at the Sermon on the Plain here in Luke chapter 6 that covers half of uh, the last half of the chapter, verses 20 through 49. The content's very similar. They share a lot of the same teachings, but they have some differences. The, the teaching in Matthew is considerably longer. Luke's sermon's about one-fourth the size of the one recorded in Matthew. Parts of uh, Matthew's sermon are included in other sections in Luke, like the teaching on the Lord's Prayer. Luke has only four Beatitudes, but it includes four woes, where Matthew has eight Beatitudes. So biblical scholars have looked at these two accounts of Jesus' life and have come up with two views on their differences. The first is that they're recording the same incident. It's not hard at all to harmonize these two passages because they are so similar. The, the different content can be understood as to what the writers thought would be best for their readers. Remember, the four Gospels are not biographies as we use that term. They are Gospels. They're telling the story of the good news of Jesus Christ. They have a theological purpose. They're 100% accurate in all that they say and every detail that is said, but they're written from differing human perspectives with differing readers in mind. They're not just telling us the facts about Jesus, but instead they're presenting a compelling case that Jesus is the one and only Son of God, that Jesus is the Savior of mankind. The big difference, other than the content differences, is the physical location where the sermons were delivered. The Sermon on the Mount was delivered on a mount. Whereas this sermon, described in Luke uh, chapter 6, verse 17, says it was in a flat area on a plain. This too can be harmonized because the word used in Luke for plain really means a flat spot. And if you've ever been up in the hilly areas... You regularly come to flat spots. But I think a much more simpler explanation describes why these two uh, recorded sermons are so alike and yet so different. They are biblical records of different sermons. Jesus' audience was 
constantly changing, so it would be only natural and smart and important for Jesus to repeat his teachings to the new audiences. Matthew records Jesus' sermon when he was on the mount. Luke records Jesus' sermon when he spoke on the plain. All very simple, reasonable, and easy to understand. One commentary said Luke's sermon contains little more than one-fourth of Matthew's sermon. It has woes of its own as well as beatitudes common to both. But above all, that of Matthew's was delivered a good while before the choice of the twelve, while Luke's was spoken after the choice of the twelve. Now, as we know that our Lord delivered some of his weightiest sayings more than once, there is no difficulty in supposing this to be one of his more extended repetitions, nor could anything be more worthy of it. Just think for a moment. If some of these teachings that we're going to be looking at are part of Jesus' repeated sermons, sermons that he gave over and over again to new audiences throughout Israel, how much more should we pay attention to this message? A couple of Sundays ago, we had a great message from our missionary, Randy Southwell. If you missed it, you need to go to our website, pvbc4u.org, and listen to it. In the afternoon, after uh, you know, the sermon, we were talking, and he mentioned that it's one of his regular sermons that he preaches when he goes to his supporting churches. He had a great message, an important message. And because his audience is constantly changing, he repeats his message. We all know the value of repetition. How much more valuable the repetition of the teaching of our Savior. We do well to pay our closest attention to his powerful words. Well, turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 6, if you're not already there. And follow along as I read, starting at verse 17. Luke chapter 6, verse 17. It says, And he came down with them and stood on a level place. With a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out for him and healed them. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Father, we come to you now with a deep sense of humility, wanting to learn right now, today, what Jesus is saying to us through these verses. Make it alive to us through your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. What powerful truths, huh? What powerful truths that turn our earthly focus upside down. For example, class, all right, let's take a pop quiz here. 
Which would you rather have, list A or list B? Okay, list A. Riches and buffets of food and laughter and everyone thinks you're wonderful. Or list B. Poverty and persistent hunger and weeping and for some people to exclude and revile you. Okay, list A. Or list B. There's never church. I've never heard a church say, come to our church. You'll find true poverty. You'll, have, you'll get incessant hunger. There'll be mourning. And you're sure to leave equipped so that people will hate you. Think about that. Jesus' teaching here is radical. It should shock us. It should take us back and make us wonder, have we missed something in our Christian life? It should strike our hearts and drive us to pray and to seek God's understanding of this text and apply it to our lives. You know, the greater church in America and now around the world has lost this message that they actually preach and teach. That the very things that Jesus said are woes are really the blessings. And the very things that Jesus said are blessings are the woes. They teach it completely backwards. Blessed are the rich, for theirs are the treasures of heaven. Blessed are those who are full, for they enjoy personal satisfaction. Blessed are those who laugh, who take nothing in life seriously, where sugarcoat everything as great. Blessed are those who are liked by everyone, because it doesn't matter what you believe, it just matters that you're wonderful. Now, our theology is much better than that. But sometimes in practice, we slip into thinking that God's main goal in our life is our health, our wealth, and our happiness. Sometimes we think that God's main goal for us is to make our earthly lives better and better. We say things like, if God closes one door, then he must have something better. Well, that's a true statement in a way, right? But the truth of that statement hinges on how we define the word better. You see, so often we define what is better only in our earthly or temporary terms. If you have this hard minimum wage job and it isn't working out, then what God wants for you, he wants to give you an easier job with better pay. If you're struggling putting the food on the table, if people are rejecting you, and if you're paying the price for following Christ, if you know about life's struggles and loss more than you know about life's comforts, then somehow you're missing out on the blessings of God. We want what we think is better rather than what God thinks is better. Sometimes we limit God's focus to the physical, earthly, temporary things. Is God more focused on our earthly joys or on our heavenly joys? Folks, here's a fundamental radical truth that summarizes our passage today. God cares more about the earthly, about the eternal priorities of your life than the earthly priorities of your life. God cares more about the eternal priorities of your life than the earthly priorities of our lives. God is more focused on us experiencing what it means to have a passionate, dependent relationship on Him rather than the comfort and the wealth of this world. God's focus is on what is real, on what is permanent, while our focus tends to be on what is temporary, on the illusions of the significance of the stuff of this world. If we could just for what second, just think 
for one second, if we could see our world with the eyes of Jesus and see how he sees us and our world, our lives would be radically changed. The Apostle Paul nailed this truth down in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He said this, But we have these treasures in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus. So that the life of Jesus may also be manifest in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Christ's sake. So that the life of Jesus may also be manifest in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Chapter 4 there ends with these words, these powerful words. So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Let me say that again. We do not look at the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen, all that we have around us is transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. What would you give up? What things would you give up that are seen to know the true blessings of living your life for the unseen? You see, the real issues isn't Jesus' teaching is upside down, but that our understanding is upside down. Unseen reality, eternal and of ultimate value. Seen reality, transient and fleeting. Poverty, both Physical and spiritual can bring us to dependence on God. Riches can bring us to self-reliance. Hunger focuses our desires on the right things. Satisfied focuses our desires on the wrong things. Weeping means that we're in touch with reality. We have a correct view of the consequences of sin. Laughter means that we're ignoring reality. Eat, drink, and be merry. Who cares? Being hated by some shows that you're standing up for the truth. Being liked by all shows that you change what you believe depending on who you're around. Ephesians says that we're blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. No, that doesn't help you pay your car bill. Because it is so much more valuable than that. Because it is so much more valuable than that. You see, the most valuable thing we have in our lives is Jesus Christ. I wonder if we truly believe that. Does the way we spend our money, our time, our talents show that the greatest reality of our lives is an eternal focus on Jesus? Do we live that way? Think about that for a second. What in your life would change today if the unseen reality of Jesus were actually the first priorities of your life. What would change? Think of one thing that would change. Write it down and start doing that. Well, let's take a closer look at Luke chapter 6 here this morning. It's one of the first things that hits us about our text 
is that the blessings are connected to the woes. The first blessing is to the poor. The first woe is to the rich. So I've put the outline together connecting those two thoughts. So our first point is, recognizing our need is better than being content with our self-reliance. It doesn't take a theological scholar to understand that Jesus is not teaching in these verses that being physically poor is the way to get to heaven. Or that starving for food or mourning or being hated is the way to God's blessings. Jesus did miracles and he fed thousands of people taking away their physical hunger. Jesus does miracles at funerals, taking away the weeping and the mourning. Jesus is not saying that the key to a blessed life is to have earthly problems of poverty and no food and mourning and being hated. Jesus is not calling every believer to some vow of poverty to starve themselves, to go about life with this permanent frown on your face and to be obnoxiously hard to get along with so that people hate you. The clear implication of Jesus' words are spiritual. One commentator said, Jesus was not teaching that poverty, hunger, persecution, and tears were blessings in themselves. If that were true, he would never have done all that he did to alleviate the suffering of others. Rather, Jesus was describing the inner attitudes we must have if we're to experience the blessedness of the Christian life. We should certainly do what we can to help others in a material way. uh, James chapter 2 and 1 John chapter 3 tells us, To do that. But we must remember that no amount of things can substitute for a personal relationship with God. Matthew's account makes this clear. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Jesus was not glorifying material poverty. Rather, he was calling for a brokenness of heart that confesses spiritual poverty. Remember that the fundamental principle behind Jesus' words is that he cares more about our eternal priorities than our earthly priorities. By any earthly definition of wealth that incorporates all of humanity all over the world, guess what? Every single one of us sitting in this room is rich. Every single one of us falls into the category of rich. I listen a lot to the uh, pastor Alistair Begg sermons. His website, you know, truthforlife.org, has all of his sermons from all of his years at Parkside Church. When he was preaching on this passage, this is what he said. Do you want to know why so few people are coming to Christ at at Parkside Church? He said, it's because we're all too rich. Personal wealth is often a great hindrance in accepting Christ. Why? Because wealth disguises our need for Christ. Wealth disguises our need for Christ. Every person has the same need of salvation. The richest of the rich to the poorest of the poor, we're all the same. But sometimes it, it takes being in need to drive us to our knees and to relinquish it all for the sake of knowing Christ. Remember that rich, rich young ruler? He walked away from Jesus because he loved his wealth. He loved his security more than being willing to give it up for eternal riches and eternal security. Jesus said it was easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich man to get to heaven. Why? 
Because between the rich man and heaven stands the blockade of his riches. Jesus is not saying that poverty is virtuous and riches are evil, but that recognizing our desperate need for salvation is what brings us into the kingdom and self-reliance on our riches, though it might make life easier here on earth, it keeps us from the eternal kingdom and then brings everlasting dire consequences. The disciples had literally given up everything to follow Christ. They were poor. But were they? Were they? Listen to what Jesus says. For what profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Folks, may we embrace this truth. Come to our poverty, to Christ. May we know the riches of his grace, of his mercy, and his love so that we may become citizens of heaven with every spiritual blessing. Does the way you spend your money reflect this truth? Evaluate your bank statements. Are biblical priorities reflected in the way you spend your money? Have you realized your poverty and let God become the ruler of your finances? The next point is that recognizing our hunger is better than being satisfied with the wrong things. This has to do with our desires. Matthew said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Here's a great point. Do you pray that? I pray that all the time. I pray all the time that the Lord would help me to hunger and thirst after righteousness. Folks, because if we're honest with ourselves, if we put a mirror up to our hearts, we know that we crave sinful things. We have sinful cravings in our heart. First John 2, 15-17 puts it this way. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is in the world. And the world is passing away with his desires. It's fleeting. It's transient. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. What are you hungering for? Think about that. What are you hungry for? Fame, security, power, greed, prestige. Are we hungering for righteousness? Are we striving to be like Christ, to be conformed to his image? Are we putting first his kingdom in our lives? Are we finding the satisfaction of our lives in the temporary and fleeting ways of this world? Are we finding the satisfaction of our lives in the unseen, eternal realities? We all hunger. It's a universal reality of all human beings. We all hunger. We all yearn for a satisfaction that fills our souls. And this world is great at offering alternatives. Many alternatives are out there to try to satisfy your soul. Sometimes they even taste good. They make it look so beautiful. Right, but we know in the end, right? We know in the end there is no satisfaction. See, what Jesus offers is literally out of this world. He offers the only thing that can bring real and lasting satisfaction to our souls. And that's himself, Jesus. Wow, think about this for a moment, folks. Wow, wow, what a privilege we have. 
What a privilege we have to know the one who can satisfy the deepest longings of our soul. What a privilege. The next point Jesus is making is that recognizing our sin is better than being joyfully ignorant of our sin. The great preacher, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, once said to his students, When you speak of heaven, let your face light up. When you speak of hell, well, then your everyday face will do. See, Christians can sometimes get a reputation, right, as being these gloomy gusses, these Eeyores that are walking around chicken little, right? The sky is falling, the sky is falling. Kind of like that mean old parent that tells that poor kid, wipe that smile off your face. Christianity is not a drudgery of weeping and sorrow and mourning and only the pagans get to laugh. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. Jesus is saying that we need to have a sober look at reality. And when you have a sober look at reality, you come to realize something significant. Not everything is right in this world. There's a really, really big problem. And it's permeating the whole world. It's infiltrating every human being that's walking on the planet. It's in you and it's in me. There's this big problem out there. It's called sin. You see, the first step to seeing Jesus for who he really is is to see first ourselves for who we really are. Sinners alienated from God, separated by our sin from his eternal plan, enemies of God through our rebellious hearts. Blessed are those who weep, who see themselves, their sin, for what it really is. Romans 3, 10 through 12 says, As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks after God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Romans 5, 6 through 10, describe us, you and me, as ungodly, as sinners, as enemies of God. This world laughs at God. There's no judgment day. No one's going to hold me accountable for my actions. Eat, drink, and be merry. Get all you can out of this life because it's all you got. They start out laughing and they will end in weeping and mourning. The hope of our lives is to start out weeping and mourning for our sins, turning to Jesus for salvation. Later comes an everlasting joy. In the light of the love and grace of God, in the light of the sacrifice of Jesus, in the light of the holiness of God's perfection, have you mourned, wept over your sin? Have you really looked at the deceitfulness of your heart and turned to Jesus for salvation? Romans 6.23, we know this verse. For the wages of sin is death. That's what we earn. That's our wages. We earn it. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Have you seen the wages of your sin? And have you turned to God for that free gift? That is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Have have you given yourself to him who gave himself for you, taking our sins, taking our penalty, so that he could lavish upon us his grace? And mercy. Oh, beloved, today, turn 
your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of this earth, the fleeting, transient, temporary things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Today is your day to turn to him. Our last point is that standing up for Jesus is better than being liked by all those around you. We have this epidemic in our culture today. One of the things that our society prizes as great and important and an achievement for all is to be liked by all. But the only way to accomplish that is to stand for nothing. Chameleons fit in everywhere. Asian Access, a Christian missions agency in South Asia, listed a series of questions that church planters ask new believers who are considering baptism. The following seven questions serve as a reality check for us, for what new believers, new followers of Jesus might experience if they go public with their decision to follow Christ in Asia. Are you willing to leave home and lose the blessings of your father? Are you willing to lose your job? Are you willing to go to the village and those who persecute you and forgive them and share the love of Christ with them? Are you willing to give your life as an offering to the Lord? Are you willing to be beaten rather than deny your faith? Are you willing to go to prison? Are you willing to die for Jesus? These seven questions they ask before the person gets baptized. Because this is the sobering reality of what they face once they claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ. If God's focus was for our earthly blessings, then no one would never ever have to answer such questions like that. Because God's all about making our lives easy and happy and comfortable and wonderful. But if God's focus is our heavenly blessing, if God's focus is on really what's real, eternity and Jesus and salvation, then these are exactly the type of questions we should be grappling with because we're living in a fallen, sinful world. Jesus said in verse 22 and 23 to rejoice when we face persecution. When we face persecution on account of him, how can you do that? Right? How can you rejoice in the face of persecution? Well, you can only do that if you have an eternal, Christ-focused view of what real blessings really are. In our country, we have lived in this false Christian bubble that has isolated us from the real persecution for our faith. Well, folks, the bubble has burst. And we best start working out our faith. We best start making it stronger for Christ. Because sooner than we could ever imagine, the cost of following him will be greater than we could ever imagine. The American dream is a national philosophy of the United States. It's a set of ideals in which freedom includes the opportunity for prosperity and success and an upward social mobility achieved through hard work. The definition of the American dream by James Trestle Adams in 1931 said, Life should be better and richer and fuller for everyone with opportunity for each according to ability or achievement, regardless of social class or circumstances of life. Beloved, I'm here to proclaim to you today that Jesus has a dream for us today. Jesus has a dream for us today, and it's not 
the American dream. It's not, folks. He wants so much more for us than that. Did you get that from the sermon today? He wants so much more for us than that. His dream is based on reality, not on transient, not on temporary, but on reality, eternity, based on truth. Do you want to know Jesus' blessings in your life? Get in touch with your spiritual poverty. Do you want to know Jesus' blessings in your life? Hunger for a satisfaction that only Jesus can give. Do you want to know Jesus' blessings in your life? Take a sobering look at the reality of your sin and run to Jesus as he lavishes his grace upon you. Do you want to know Jesus' blessings? Stand up and be counted. Become a fully committed follower of Jesus Christ. You don't get much more radical teaching than the radical teaching of our Jesus. Now the challenge before us, live it. Let's pray. Father, I am challenged so much by your word today. Jesus, you are amazing. Thank you for these powerful words that just challenge the whole premise so much of what we're doing with our lives and what we're living for. Jesus, we don't want fleeting, temporary nothingness that, that lasts insignificantly. We want reality. We want hope. We want life. We want joy. We want, we want the most and the best of this life that you have to offer us, abundant life, eternal blessing. Lord, give us a perspective that is radical, that is different, that is shaped by these words of Jesus Christ in our lives. Change us, we pray. Help us to live it. In Jesus' name, amen.